This is Car Expert. If it does turn out to be legitimate and Toyota was cheating just like Volkswagen, it would be an extraordinary story. Hopefully the four stays true to that kind of ethos of being affordable transportation for the masses. Zero to 100 is expected to be roughly 4.5 seconds, which is insane to think because the car weighs almost three tonnes. Hello to you, Mike Costello. Hello, Mandy. And hello, William Stockford. Do we have to do that thing every week where we say, oh, you said my name first. No, you said my name first last time. <laughs> and you just did. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, they always we do- say age before beauty will, and that's why she addressed me first. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> so true, so true. Um, now, we'll, we all know that you're a self-confessed American car fanatic, so I want to know your thoughts on the Cadillac Celestic, which was revealed this week. This is just wild. This is, yeah, is. just to, to – I'm, I'm going to try and not nerd out here because this is just a fascinating move by Cadillac. So for years they've – they, they've constantly chopped and changed their strategy. They'd bring in a new boss. They'd have a grand vision that would kind of get cut down. Things would change. And nowhere has that been more evident than at the top of the range. Because back in the late 2000s, they wanted to introduce, you know, the reports went that they wanted to introduce a new flagship on the Zeta platform that we developed for the Holden VE Commodore here. Sorry, that Holden developed, I wasn't there. Um, <laughs> but um, then that didn't happen. There was supposed to be a new V8 engine, that didn't happen. Um, then, it, you know, a few years later, there was the Escala concept, and that was supposed to uh, preview uh, a flagship Cadillac to sit at, at the top of the model range, again, with a new V8 engine. That didn't happen. What ended up being the flagship was the CT6, which was introduced on an an all-new platform and then discontinued, at least in the US, still produced in China, just a few short years later. So Cadillac never seems to really commit to um, the, the top of their lineup, but they've got such a rich history. If you go back to the first half of the 20th century, Cadillacs were it. They were, you know, seen as virtually on the, on the same level as something like Rolls Royce. And now Cadillac has remembered its its history and they've decided, oh, well, we're not going to bother with a BMW 7 Series rival. We're not going to bother with a Mercedes-Benz EQS rival. No, we are going to go to the very top, the highest echelon, somewhere where we haven't competed really since, you know, the 50s at the latest. And that's the Celestic which will have a price tag north of US $300,000. So that's actually works out to be around 475,000 Australian dollars, which is twice uh, yeah about tw- yeah more than twice as expensive as Cadillac's current most expensive model and actually puts it somewhere for reference in the US puts it between a V8 and a W12 powered version of a Bentley Flying Spur Flying Spur Mulliner. So <laughs> That's very ambitious pricing for Cadillac. And fortunately, they haven't just kind of, you know, tarted something together and used a, a off-the-shelf components. This thing is f- customizable in a way that we haven't seen, you know, an American brand do in, in the longest time. It's customizable in a way that, that a Rolls-Royce would be. It's this giant lift back uh, with a dual motor electric powertrain. The, the power, torque, and range figures are good, but they're they're not amazing. Um, 447 kilowatts of power, 868 newton meters of torque, zero to 60 time, zero, zero to 60 mile per hour time, over 3.8 seconds in range of 483 kilometers. So 
you know, competitive. Um, but where they have decided they need to make their statement is in the design and the amount of customization that you can do with the vehicle. And it really seems to be being positioned as, as an American alternative to the Rolls-Royce Spectre. And that's very, very, very ambitious. And I, I got I to gotta hand it to Cadillac for having the chutzpah to, to do that. Totally agree. And I'm really glad you raised that point that, you know, people who uh, maybe haven't followed the auto industry for a long time don't realise that Cadillac in 1910, 1920, 1930, it was the absolute pinnacle of automotive. America was the centre of the automotive world. Uh, although maybe some Carl Benz fans might uh, relate <laughs> that. But, um, you know, first V8 engine, first electric starter, like cars with, Will, you can brief me on this, but cars with like heated seats in the 50s. You know, we're talking about extraordinarily advanced vehicles. And I love that General Motors has had the proverbial, um, the proverbials to just knuckle down and make that brand what it was and to not do things by halves and turn it into another Acura or Lexus or Infiniti or Lincoln or any of those, but to actually make it something higher and better. Because the whole point of cars that are in the concept stage and the whole point of brands that are being rebirthed is to reach for the stars, and that's exactly what GM has done. And I absolutely love that they've done it. Yeah. And they, you speak of concepts, this looks almost exactly like the concept. Like I would have to, it would be like when I spot the difference puzzles, you'd have to put photos of them next mm-hmm. to each other for me to be able to tell the difference. This thing looks like it's rolled out of the future into now. So it's fascinating. They, uh, they're not really going to be able to, you know, produce that many of them because it's, it's effectively, you know, it's the closest thing to hand built that you can get with a flagship electric vehicle. Um, there's a lot of thought that they've put into the construction of it. So, for example, it's got six large precision sand cast aluminium components in the underbody, um, reducing part count there by 30 to 40 components. Um, inside, there's this pillar to pillar screen that we, we haven't really seen on anything, you know, outside of China. Um, and I love that they revealed it in this this electric blue with a matching electric blue interior. Like it's that's just, what Americans do, don't they? Like especially going back to the fifties with Cadillac. Yes, the exterior matched the interior. Yes, where are the giant fins and the yes. ivory uh, materials? And um, I will refer just before we wrap this up. I will refer to that absolute um, academic journal of choice, UrbanDictionary.com, which lists the Cadillac of as being the best of the best, something that differentiates itself with superior quality, e.g., I don't know this reference, but Dayton's are the Cadillac of wire wheels. So what I'm trying to get at here is even Urban Dictionary, that absolute, you know, that, that, that bastion of culture says that if you call something the Cadillac of, to this day it signifies that something is the best of the best. That is some serious brand longevity. Hello to you, Jack Quick. Hey there, Mandy. How are you? Very good, thank you. We're going to kick off with a new story, which I'm sure Mike Costello is jumping for beans to talk about very soon. The 2025 <laughs> Renault 4 EV reboot has been previewed in Paris. Yeah, that's that's right, Mandy. So the reborn uh, Renault 4 um, has been previewed by a concept at the Paris Motor Show, and um, it's called, the concept is called the Renault Forever Trophy. 
that's what it's that's what it's called. The production uh, Renault Four is due by twenty twenty five. And um, to kind of give you some context about the the concept in particular, it measures uh, four point one meter uh, meters long, which is a, a similar length to uh, the Volkswagen T Cross, the SUV. If, if you're familiar with that. So this uh, production version of the Renault 4, which is going to be all electric, will sit alongside the reborn Renault 5, which you might have heard us talk about on the podcast before or read a story, um, which is due in 2024, so a year beforehand. And um, so this reborn Renault 4 will compete against a whole range of small electric SUVs, including um, the entry-level Volkswagen, Skoda and Cupra electric SUVs that haven't been revealed yet, uh, in, in full I should say, the Jeep Avenger as well as the Mini Aceman as just a few examples. Now, this concept in particular is extremely tough looking, very boxy. And I, I think I wrote down here, it definitely means business. <laughs> and um, so the Renault 4 is going to be built on the, the Renault, Nissan, Mitsubishi Alliance's CMF BEV platform, which, gonna, which is going to underpin a whole range of different uh, models, including um, the next generation all electric Nissan Micra. And um, all of these um, uh, EVs built on this platform will be built uh, in a plant in northern France. And um, it gets even better because um, even though the Renault 4 and Renault 5 are a few years off, um, they're understood to be on the cards for an Australian launch because they haven't been ruled out just yet. And um, so we'll have to wait and see what that means in a few years' time once they're revealed in production form, um, whether they're going to be coming to Australia. But I want to know, guys, what do you think of the concept? Oh, you Leo, Mike, Mike you're jumping the beans to talk. <laughs> Wait your turn, wait your turn. No, um, so I actually have a shirt in my um, in my drawer with a Renault 5 on it and, of course, the Renault 5 was uh, already promised to make a return and the concept version of it has been revealed already. And so this is step two in Renault's um, uh, retro-inspired uh, revolution or Renault-lution in the company's uh, jargon. Um, and it's really great that I think the company – to define its electric future is tapping into its iconic past. It's really rebirthing some of its most beloved vehicles for the electric age, and it's tapping into the kind of emotions that people attach to these vehicles. And sometimes new startup EV brands are a bit cold and clinical, so it's a real point of difference for Renault. Um, while the 5 is sort of a sporty little hatchback, the 4 was always Renault's answer to the um, uh Citroen 2CV. So it was sort of the people's car of France. And this model looks to kind of be that, although given that we're in 2022, it's obviously going to be a small SUV rather than a small car. But it looks to keep all of the design attributes that the previous iteration had. And the Renault 4 is such an icon. To see that come back alongside a Renault 5 from mid-decade, electrified, is just a, a wonderful thing for car enthusiasts, I think. And I really commend Renault for the direction that it's going in. Let's just hope that it doesn't end up being... Uh, a new Beetle in terms of its execution, and it's more like a new Mini when BMW relaunched Mini. So it's not just a style statement, but also a good car underneath. Yeah, let's let, let's hope for that. Let's hope it's a new Beetle and not a new new Beetle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. We also saw this week that Renault um, has confirmed that the Zoe is actually going to be phased out in Europe. 
So it'll be effectively supplanted by the four and five EVs. The Zoe actually was, while it completely you know sunk without a trace here, in Europe it was on the top of the uh, EV sales charts for a couple of years from memory. Uh, but it's I, I do like when brands kind of tap into their past in a in a way like this, it's it's not slavishly retro, um, but it's there's clear where the inspiration has come from. But you know, we've seen the the reveal of this. But uh, the Renault Group CEO Luca De Mayo also said uh, at the Paris Motor Show that he doesn't see the parity. Uh, that, sorry, he doesn't see parity between petrol powered and electric vehicles in price anytime soon. So while the four was you know a people's car and you know, really popular in especially like rural areas of France as well back in the day. Um, I'll be curious to see how this is priced relative to something like a Clio, for example, and relative to Renault, the Renault Group's current cheap EVs. So right now they've got the, an electric version of the Twingo um, and they've got the Dacia Spring uh, which are two of the cheapest EVs that you can get in Europe. So um, hopefully the four stays true to its uh, to that kind of uh, ethos of being affordable, you know, transportation for the masses. Mm, absolutely. Uh, now we're going to move on. Now the Ineos Grenadier finally has been put into production. Cannot wait to see this one here, Jack. Yeah, that's right, Mandy. So production of the Ineos Grenadier 4x4 has now started after a few delays. It's finally happening. And um, so Australian market, uh, market demonstrators uh, will be here before the end of the year and um, with customer cars um, arriving from January next year, which isn't too far away if you think about it, just a few months. Mm -hmm. So the Ineos Grenadier, if you haven't already heard about it, you most likely have because we haven't stopped talking about it, is designed to fill the void of the the previous generation Land Rover Defender with its boxy styling and very retro-looking, rugged, go-anywhere style. And um, so this uh, Ineos Grenadier is being made in an old Daimler factory in Humbach, France, which used to make smart cars. Uh, I used to uh, wrote that in a few stories. I think it's quite a cool fact. Mm-hmm. And um, so for Ineos, uh, Australia is seen as a, a major market um, where it can potentially steal sales from the, the 70 series Land Cruiser because that's obviously a very boxy, traditional 4x4 and this Grenadier might be enticing to those people that can't order one right now because the, the orders are currently closed. So um, in Australia, Ineos um, is going to have 29 retail sites um, as part of a, a total, total um, global uh, market share of 200 um, retail sites. And um, the the majority, a number of um, the local dealers in Australia are going to be in regional areas, which I think is quite an interesting touch. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about this as a rugged off-roader that um, won't really, it doesn't make complete sense in the city. And it would make complete sense uh, out in rural regional areas. I think that's going to where the market is, in all honesty. So in Australia, um, Ineos is going to be operating uh, using an agency model um, rather than the traditional um, sale uh, sales model with the uh, franchises, uh, which means you won't be able to haggle with prices. It is what it is. You can take it or leave it. Um, but I want to know, guys, are you excited to see the Ineos Grenadier very soon because we've been talking about it forever now? It's almost here. What do you guys think? 
kind of feels like the culmination of uh, a long time. I remember first getting wind of this vehicle a few years ago and then to watch the progression as the company has hired people and built out its uh, showroom network and, you know, signed up staff and even brought prototypes to market. It's been great to watch um, some of the forums and social media groups devoted to this vehicle are some of the most passionate, obsessive groups I've seen of any car. So I think it's going to have a really devoted audience. The price coming in under hundred grand is relatively reasonable and there's definitely a spot in the market for a car like this for an Overlander type audience. Um, so it's really, really good to see it all coming together. Um, it's going to be very interesting to watch to see whether some of the promises Ineos has made around being a sort of open source servicing company and providing all of the requisite data and things to independent mechanics and even owners, whether that comes to, to fruition, whether the, the, the showroom network uh, comes to fruition in the way that it's been promised and moreover, whether the vehicle itself can stand up to the test of time. I've actually driven a prototype and it felt great, but who the hell knows, they might all start breaking down after six months. It doesn't have any legacy to lean on, even though all the parts are quite reputable using BMW parts and, and, and a lot of other tier one supplier parts. So really interesting to watch fascinating program it's finally here and um, the only thing that's left to do is to drive the finished product i think it's really interesting that there's this very regional focused uh rollout for this vehicle mm. and they really think it's going to appeal to buyers out in the country and it may well do but i fully expect to see a bunch of these in the city as well just purely <laughs> based on the looks all of those people that love the old defender that maybe only want to go off-road occasionally otherwise spend most of their time in the city uh, i expect to see some of these rolling around metro areas without a speck of dirt on their tires too <laughs> yeah say what you will about the land cruiser 70 it might be an old boat that's manual only but we do know that at least it goes forever so i think some of the more hardcore operators who are really taking their cars to the far-flung bits of the country are probably going to watch and wait yeah um, and i wouldn't be at all surprised mm. i mean you see oh you see old defenders in the city all the time which is insane because if you've ever driven an original defender you know how awful it is to drive <laughs> on anything yes. sealed road like turning circle the size of a barge no ergonomics etc etc and so people obviously don't give a crap they only care about the style and for that reason i think yeah we're going to see lots of vinyoses in town as well i'm fully mm-hmm. expecting albors to order one and put like 24s <laughs> on it lower it <laughs> Don't give that guy ideas, Will. Matt Black rap. Yeah, I can totally see it now. Uh, Now, Jack, it looks like um, Dieselgate could be making a return but for a different brand. Yeah, take two of sorts. So um, <laughs> Australian law, a law firm, Madden's Lawyers, has launched a class action against Toyota, um, alleging that it used uh, the same type of diesel uh, defeat devices that set off the Volkswagen Dieselgate saga in vehicles such as um, the Hilux and Land Cruiser. Um, it's worth noting that this isn't related at all to the class action centred around Toyota's faulty DPFs. This is completely separate. And um, this latest uh, class action, Toyota Australia rejects um, rigorously and says it will support, uh, defend the class action in the Victorian um, Supreme Court a lot. And um, so these uh, defeat devices, if you're not familiar with them, um, tamper with the vehicle's um, ECU so they perform differently in lab conditions than they do on the road so that they have different results. And um, it's kind of strange. It's n- not certain what the what this claim is based on. There's no 
evidence or data suggesting why they're going about this, but um, Toyota's Hino truck division recently admitted um, it falsified engine performance data um, in Japan. So um, it's strange that they're uh, going about the passenger vehicles as well. And um, I'll just go through the claimed vehicles um, that are alleged to have these um, defeat de- uh, diesel uh, defeat devices. They are... Uh, include the Hilux, Prado, Fortuna, Hiace, and Granvia with the 2.8-litre 1GD FTV engine. There's also the Hilux again um, with the, the smaller 2.4-litre 2GD FTV engine. Lots of letters, I'm sorry. <laughs> I love these catchy names. You know, Ford is like a Coyote V8 and Toyota's got a 1GD VABC. <laughs> it's so sexy. There's um, a few more. There's uh, the Land Cruiser 300, the latest one with the 3.3-litre. This is a good one. F33A FTV engine. And then there's also the Trust Trident and tested Land Cruiser 70 Series with the 4.5-litre 1VD FTV engine. Last of all, <laughs> uh, the RAV4 um, fitted with the 2.2-litre diesel uh, known as the 2AD FHV or the 2AD FTV engine. Now, I know that I just said a lot of letters and numbers just then. Hopefully you can recall that what I just said. But um, what are your guys' thoughts on this? Is it? I think it's very strange. What What's the deal? Yeah, there's a lot to come out in all this. Um, my understanding is there has been some sort of study conducted in Australia with some sort of data suggesting that perhaps a, a triple D or a diesel defeat device has been used here. Uh, it's a hell of an accusation to make and it has potential global ramifications because, of course, if it is discovered that a la Volkswagen Dieselgate that Toyota was using defeat devices in Australia, it would be a logical extension to say that they're probably using them everywhere else as well because they don't make cars here. So this, if it is true, will be bigger than Dieselgate. Now, it is hard for me to see how a small Australian regional law firm has discovered something that no other entity in the entire world has discovered. Um, if it does turn out to be true and the federal court or the, sorry, the, the Supreme Court of Victoria does find against Toyota, it will be extraordinary. Um, I am sort of speculating that perhaps the, the law firm might be trying to drum up interest to get behind its class action, but obviously it wouldn't be embarking on a court case if it didn't think it at least had a shot. Toyota has, of course, pushed back very hard on this and, and called bullcrap on it and said that there's absolutely no evidence that it's been using defeat devices. Um, So it's really one we're just going to have to watch and wait. Um, But as I said, if it does turn out to be legitimate and Toyota was cheating just like Volkswagen, it would be an extraordinary story. And for that to happen in Australia would be like I would be stunned. It would be probably the biggest story in my entire career (laughs) in terms of what I've seen from the car industry. Like it's that level of accusation. So it's a huge claim and we're just going to have to wait and see I'm sceptical, which I think is a healthy position to take, but you've got to have an open mind to this too. So it's a court case that we need to be watching very, very carefully. Mike's exactly right. It's 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 healthy to approach this with a degree of scepticism, but of course we just need to wait and see what, what comes out from this. If it if this is Dieselgate Mark II, ooh boy. Oh, yes, indeedy. Um, now, speaking of... Oh, boy, the Rolls-Royce Spectre has finally been revealed. And, oh, I personally, I don't think there's a bad angle in this, Jack. 
Oh, yes. I'm glad that you agree. <laughs> yes, uh, I am. I really like this. So, yeah, Rolls-Royce has, uh, as you mentioned, Mandy, has finally revealed um, the Rolls-Royce Spectre, which is its first electric series production car, which is a very big milestone for the, the company. Um, customer deliveries for the Spectre are going to be starting from the fourth quarter of next year. Um, so it'll be not too far away. I've been writing about this car forever now. It's very cool to be seeing it without the camouflage on because I was getting extremely sick of the same, same, but this is something different. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, so at this stage, um, final power, um, acceleration and range figures are still being uh, refined, Uh, but preliminary data has shown the Spectre is expected to have a range of 520 kilometres according to WLTP testing, as well as uh, 430 kilowatts and 900 newton meters of torque. Zero to 100 uh, kilometers an hour is expected to be um, roughly 4.5 seconds, which is insane to think because the car weighs almost three tons, <laughs> which kind of makes sense when you think about it because it's an electric Rolls Royce. Like mm-hmm. it's it's a big car, and you think, oh, it's got literally everything, so it kind of makes sense. It's three tons, but it's fast too, which mm. is really cool. And um, so if you haven't already seen some pictures of the Spectre, it's a two-door um, Grand Tourer, which has absolutely humongous doors. It's like a big boat for the road. And um, I'm just like you, Mandy, I freaking love it. Um, it has 23-inch wheels as standard. And it has a few other things, um, the widest Rolls-Royce grille ever with illumination in it too. And um Strangely as well, I think it's quite cool that it's the most aerodynamic model uh, that Rolls-Royce has ever created with a drag coefficient of 0.25. So very slippery. (laughs) And um, a few other things too. On the inside, there are over 10,000 illuminated stars and um, the suspension has been tuned to deliver a magic carpet ride. (laughs) So it's going to be very comfy and I... I don't even know how I would react if I saw this in the person, uh, in person should say, and um, I think it would just be next level. And um, one last quick thing as well, there's um, a channel for, for the wiring and climate control pipe work um, between the battery and the floor, and this also allows for a completely smooth underfloor profile, which makes a lot of sense because it's an electric vehicle and you don't really need that many um, components under the car, and it also helps with the drag coefficient, making it extra slippery. But I want to know, guys, is this, the good, is this a good first EV for Rolls-Royce? Have they done a good job? Two schools of thought, right? Um, so Charles Stuart Rolls himself back at the turn of the 20th century um, said electric cars are the future. So, I mean, obviously electric cars in 1900 weren't what they are in 2022, but Rolls-Royce has actually been talking about electric vehicles earlier than anybody. So it feels entirely appropriate that Rolls-Royce goes down the EV path, especially considering it's all about smoothness and quietude and refinement. Um, It's a marriage made in heaven. Um, There's two schools of thought. One, yes, it's a beautiful car. It's very, it's very, um, uh, steeped in the history of Rolls-Royce. It's a, a phantom coupe replacement, essentially. But there's another school of thought that this was a chance for Rolls-Royce to really branch out and do something just a little bit different. Um, I'm not saying it needs to go too radical, but it was a chance for the company to establish the way that its vehicles will look without necessarily paying slavish homage to the past. And I know I just praised Renault for having a retro-inspired future, but I think that 
it's done it in a slightly more convincing fashion. So while it's a beautiful car, I don't know if it's the revolutionary car stylistically that it is technologically speaking. I like it. Um, it. It looks like a Wraith to me. Like, honestly, if you just kind of squint, you can see the Wraith in there. Mandy, you said there's there's no bad line in it. I think the one thing I don't like about the design is the taillights. They look just kind of stuck on there. They look weird, like they belong in a trailer. Um, but it, <laughs> it, it, it looks it looks fantastic. The inside is very, very, very familiar. Uh, Mike, I, I totally see your point there. I mean, they, they could have set a, a new design direction, but I think they were, I think perhaps the thought process at Rolls-Royce was we're already doing something so far outside of what we usually do. Let's not alienate people further. It needs mm. to look like what we think a Rolls-Royce and what people think a Rolls-Royce looks like for people to accept it as a Rolls-Royce. Um, mm. So while it's kind of nicely smoothed off at the ends, it you know it looks like a wraith. And I think that is probably the right. I think that was a very cautious approach to the design, but I think that's ultimately going to pay off because I, I think it's more likely to be accepted with a design like this as a traditional Rolls-Royce and as an ultra-luxury EV than if they just threw, the, threw their existing design language out for, for something more radical. Hmm. We haven't spoken about the pink highlights in the, in, in the interior. <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't know. Yeah. What were they thinking? More of a magenta. Well, yeah, true. I mean, Rolls, Rolls-Royce's whole bag, and I've been lucky enough to go to the Goodwood factory where Rolls-Royce's are produced, is, is, is customization. So almost nobody that buys a Rolls-Royce buys it as is they're all optioned up to the hilt and people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars configuring these vehicles i mean you can go in there and say i want the bark from a tree that's only grown in the swamps of florida and they'll find it for you and they'll do it i don't know whatever who is this tasteless billionaire well it is a rolls choice i want a i want a solid gold spirit of ecstasy they'll do it for you so i think what they're trying to say with these wacky colors is to kind of illustrate that you know you can have any configuration you like and what says that better than a insanely leery interior that probably appeals to some people that maybe don't traditionally go for rolls royces I've yes. never seen the combination of mustard and magenta before. No. Um, but look, I've seen your wardrobe, but I'm not convinced by <laughs> I was talking to someone at Rolls-Royce a while ago, and, and uh, to, to give you an idea of just how, you know, customizable a car is, uh, it was uh, one of their clients was he owned a giant farm. I forget what he farmed, but he made a lot of money. He'd become quite successful. Troubles. Oh, no, I don't think it was truffles. Can you, can you farm truffles? Is that a thing? No, um, but that's the only thing that makes enough money <laughs> to buy a roller. Well, he anyway, he had made so much money from uh, from his agricultural business that he actually took in an example of, I don't know, it was a fruit or vegetable or something, to Rolls-Royce. And he said, I want my car this color because this is what made me the money to buy a Rolls-Royce. So I thought that was a cool story. I, I don't remember if it was something nicely colored. I don't think it was a blueberry. So... <laughs> Um, what, what do we think about the price? Around eight hundred thousand, it it could be too expensive. If you have to ask, if you have to ask, mm-hmm. you can't afford it. That's the old adage, right? Exactly. So yep. the company said in its release it'll be priced between Ghost and Phantom. Yeah, um, right. and so that kind of illustrates it'll be about eight hundred using that measure. But I strongly suspect the people that are buying these. The last thing they're going to ask is how much does it cost because they've got that much cash. It just doesn't matter. 
Yeah, true. If you would like to read more, you can head to carexpert.com.au. Thank you, Jack Quick. Thanks, Mandy. It's the electric vehicle comparison that everyone has been waiting for, putting the two most affordable EVs in the country head-to-head, the MG ZS EV and the BYD Atto 3. Moko, you did this and undeniably a no-brainer to do, right? Absolutely. Um, So, yeah, we're seeing a real trend at the moment, and it's not just in Australia, it's around the world, that the Chinese manufacturers are really um, muscling in to the uh, nascent affordable EV space, the sub $50,000 EV space. If you want an EV that's cheap, you're probably buying something from China. Um, And that really makes a lot of sense when you consider that China is far and away the world's biggest electric car market. About three quarters of the EVs still are sold in China, even though Europe and America are making some serious ground. Um, And a lot of people in Australia probably haven't heard of BYD, but globally, BYD is an absolute monster. It's number two to Tesla in pure electric sales around the world. It's got a massive stake uh, owned by Warren Buffett. Um, and it is uh, a battery producer for a lot of other companies, including Toyota in the future. So it's a very reputable organisation. Um, and then you've got MG, of course, which has made significant ground in recent times as a purveyor of affordable petrol, light and small SUVs and light cars, um, but isn't quite as well-known in the EV space. But the ZS EV was the number two selling EV in the country last year and just got an update with a bigger battery and, and some more you know, bits and pieces along those lines. So the Atto 3, the BYD Atto 3 is tested, was the $47,000 RRP or around $50,000 drive away extended range model. But there is a $3,000 cheaper short range coming soon. And then the model, sorry, the, uh, the MG ZSEV, $44,990 drive away, no matter what state you live in, climbing up to $48,990 drive away for the more luxurious version, but we drove the base model. So a small price difference but in the grand scheme not a lot both of them are small suvs so conceptually quite similar vehicles um but not vehicles that necessarily are quite as close as you might think when push comes to shove okay um okay given the auto 3 is is practically a brand new model and the the zs has been around for a little while does the zs feel a little more dated yeah, it does. And this is exactly right. So there's no denying that a 44990 drive away electric vehicle with a seven year warranty is extremely compelling. And I commend MG for being able to do that. In fact, with the updated model, they kept the price exactly the same as the, the pre-update, even though the updated one gets a new design, new interior, longer range, um, more advanced battery, et cetera, et cetera. So a really commendable effort there. Um, but it does feel a bit more dated than the BYD, which is based on a brand new ground up platform. Um, we're talking in terms of driving range, the BYD wins. It's got a, a bigger capacity battery. Both run lithium ion phosphate battery chemistries that are very stable and less prone to run away than, than other battery types. MG does 320 Ks per charge WLTP versus 420 for the Atto 3. So the BYD has more range. It's also more efficient, um, 15 kilowatt hours per 100 versus 17, despite weighing more and being more powerful. So that points to a more advanced motor. Um, When you talk about uh, charging speeds, it can handle a faster DC charging speed, though still only 80 kilowatts. Although I saw 90 kilowatts on a tritium charger, so I think that maybe it's underestimated its ability slightly. Um, And then you get inside the vehicle and it's chalk and cheese. So the MGZS interior is quite similar to the petrol-powered MGZS. It's got a decent 10.1-inch touchscreen with a new infotainment system, but it's still got 
you know, no telescopic steering wheel adjustment. It still has quite cheap feeling components inside. It's definitely a, an EV that's built to a price. Yes, it's practical. Yes, the actual fit and finish is perfectly acceptable, um, as these Chinese cars tend to be, but it doesn't feel like a, a premium vehicle. Whereas the BYD kind of does. So its synthetic leather feels almost Lexus levels of soft. It has a enormous nearly 13-inch touchscreen that rotates 90 degrees, so you can have it portrait for mapping or horizontal for everything else. It has brilliant over-the-air updates. When I picked the car up, it didn't have sat-nav, it didn't have conversational voice control to operate the sunroof and the air conditioning, and it didn't have Spotify integration. I did an over-the-air update, and then, lo and behold, it had all of those features. It didn't have Apple CarPlay when I picked it up. The week after I returned it, another OTA update, bang, Apple CarPlay. So it's a much more technologically sophisticated machine, better sound system, better lighting, better screen, more luxurious features and and a fit and finish and a material quality that goes above and beyond what the MG can offer and also has a more efficient motor and a bigger battery to boot for not a whole lot more money. So this, to me, really points to the rapid development and advancement we're seeing of of EVs. MG's got a brand-new EV platform coming out on a brand-new model called the MG4 next year, which is its first ground-up EV, um, which is what the BYD803 is. So... That really shows just how quickly EVs move and develop in time. Mm. But that is not to say that the MG isn't better at some things than the BYD, which I'm sure we'll get to. Hmm. Well, now I'm curious. <laughs> what does the MG <laughs> well, do yeah, better? Let's answer it now, actually. Yeah. That's a good segue. <laughs> um, so first of all, um, I have to say the MG ZS update drives better than I remember the pre-facelift driving. Um, it's got a very simple torsion beam rear versus an independent rear on the BYD. But um, it's got better tyres for a starter. It's got proper Michelin tyres, whereas the BYD is running on these random Atlas tyres that I've never heard of and which frankly suck. So replace those immediately if you buy the BYD. Um, But the MG also comes with a seven-year warranty with absolutely no conditions attached. And the the BYD has been criticised because its importer in Australia, a company called EV Direct, um, has been criticised for, for having a lot of conditions and stipulations in its warranty. Will, you wrote a, a much more detailed story on that, and I won't, I won't bore the listeners with all of the details here, but suffice to say some components are not covered by the six- or seven-year warranty that other aspects of the vehicle are covered by. Not so with the MG, or certainly fewer exceptions for the MG. MG also has much more dealers, so 80 dealers versus about 30. Um, it's got cheaper servicing done every two years rather than every one, unless you do a lot of case. And MG has been really good at having a holistic approach. So it will sell you a wall box developed in-house that it will have installed for you for a fixed price. Um, It's got some really good communications around electric vehicles and how to operate and run them. It's created a very kind of non-scary, very approachable, very holistic, um, macro-minded approach to selling big volume of EVs, which is something that BYD doesn't really do yet because it's using a new distributor with an online showroom and a new showroom, brick-and-mortar showroom model that hasn't really been tested yet. So there are some some kinks and some snags there that MG doesn't necessarily have because it's more established in this market. So you probably have more confidence, I suppose, dipping your toe into the EV waters with the MG than the BYD, even though it was just actual products, the BYD is clearly a generation ahead of the MG. Now, how do they both score in terms of safety ratings, Mike? So this is a very interesting point, Will, and I don't think it's coincidental that you raise it. Um, <laughs> so, so neither of them have five-star ANCAP ratings for very different reasons. So the pre-update MG ZS EV was the first MG to get a five-star crash rating. This is just an update for 2023. It's not an all-new car. 
uh, and yet it lost its rating. And I've spoken to both AMCAP and MG about that, and they're not really going into a heck of a lot of detail as to why. They're not being drawn on the why. They are retesting the car, and MG is confident of getting five stars yet again. Um, but I can't work out why, uh, for an update, you would you would not allow the existing rating to carry over. Typically, it does. So there's obviously something that's gone on there, um, and we have to wait and see. The BYD received a five-star NCAP rating in Europe and in New Zealand, and NCAP's protocols and pathways are linked to Euro NCAP, and yet the five-star rating didn't apply to Australia. Why? Well, it turns out that EV Direct might have missed a stipulation in the Australian design rules, ADR34 it's called, that requires you have a top tether for a child seat in the middle row, second row. It's in the middle seat in the second row. It has to have a top tether to be classified as a five-seat car, which is missing. So uh, if it technically is in contravention of ADRs, can't get a safety score. So uh, BYD is working on a fix for that at the moment. I would suggest that you would think the five-star rating would carry over otherwise. So I'd be confident that both these cars, in theory, should crash quite well, and they're furnished with some pretty good driver assist tech. The M, the, uh, the BYD has a few more of those safety assist features as standard over the MG, um, but they should both stand up to crash scrutiny. But unfortunately, I can't categorically say that because of two rather unusual situations that we're currently looking at. Yeah. So how do they both compare on the road, Moko? Yeah, so neither of these are what you would classify as sports cars. Um, the BYD is is a bit more refined. The MG's motor is a bit noisier. It's a bit louder over expansion joints and things like that. The BYD has some of the worst OEM tyres I've ever driven, and I sort of touched on that before, but replaced those. Um, the BYD is very softly sprung, so it's sometimes the dampers don't catch it on rebound quite as well as they could. There's quite a bit of body roll. It falls over its inside, sorry, its outside front tyre in cornering. Uh, because there is that sort of pronounced body movement that you get. It's quite plush and comfortable on the straight ahead, but it certainly falls over once the you know dynamic twisty roads start to present themselves. Um, and the MG is not much better, frankly. It's, it's hardly a sports demon either, and it has a pretty ordinary driving position. You sit up a bit too high, and the steering wheel doesn't adjust much. I didn't find either of them all that you know inspiring on, on twisty roads, and I'm not expecting these to be sports cars, but it does show that the Chinese brands are great at tech and price and, and, and all these things, but they still sometimes fall over when it comes to engineering the vehicle to drive as well as it could drive. Um, the, the BYD is quicker, 7.5 seconds versus 8.5 seconds to 100, and both have that wonderful electric vehicle tendency to be incredibly smooth and linear in their delivery and very refined and quiet. So it's a very relaxing experience. Um, disappointingly, neither of them had really high, high-end brake regeneration systems. They both had adjustable brake regen, but neither of them can do one-pedal driving, which I think is a bit disappointing because I really enjoy that aspect of EVs, not having to use the mechanical brake. So there's definitely room for improvement in both. Um, but overall, I would, I would certainly say that probably the BYD just takes the edge in, in that department, but not by much. Uh, what about uh, cabin space and practicality? Which one does it better? Yeah, so pretty practical, both of them, actually. I mean, these aren't big cars. These are sort of sub 4.5 metre long cars. I've got the exact figures here. Auto 3 is 4455 millimetres and the uh, MG is 4323 millimetres. So they're definitely oh. small SUVs, but both of them, I'm 194 centimetres, 6 foot 4, and I had room in the second row of both. The BYD has a full panoramic roof, like a Tesla Model 3, 
which does impact on headroom slightly. Uh, the MG had slightly better headroom. But the BYD, because it's based on the new EV-only skateboard platform, has a perfectly flat floor, whereas the MG has the legacy transmission tunnel hump because it's also sold as a petrol car. So the BYD for me had a slightly more, not just better built and high-tech cabin, but it also had a bit more practicality, slightly bigger boot as well. Although, again, neither of these are the most capacious booted vehicles getting around. But what about interior design, Mike? <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's polarizing, isn't it? I mean, BYD's taken a really interesting approach with you know creams and blues and reds and all sorts of interesting colors are going on. There's like tout guitar string style pockets in the doors. There's some very unusual shaping, wave shaping going on. Um, now, look, design is purely subjective, um, but there are a lot of people that don't love the way the interior looks. Um, I'm probably one of them. I think it's a bit over the top, perhaps. I wouldn't mind seeing a more traditional colour palette, maybe offered at some point. What you can't deny, though, is that the quality and the ergonomics, I mean, they even moved the indicator stalk to the right-hand side, which is, which is you know, really um, commendable. But in terms of all of the actual objective uh, elements of an interior, the BYD interior is great. Stylistically, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit polarizing. I probably don't love it. What do you guys reckon, Will? I, I feel like you've got some thoughts. <laughs> Look, I love that the Chinese brands actually experiment with color a bit more than other yeah. brands do. And you see this. We was just looking at photos of Chinese market cherry models and the the number of different color schemes they offer. You know, here, here's a blue and white, but here's a slightly different blue and white scheme, and here's a green. You know, that that's I love the experimentation with color. Where I think BYD designers experimented a bit too much was in the details. I think that the, the weird, almost like muscle-like ligament-looking details mm. and the guitar <laughs> strings, it's too much. It looks like it's going to date really quickly. It's yeah. messy. But I have sat in one of these. I haven't had a chance to, to drive one yet. But I've sat in one. I was, I was generally you know, pretty impressed with the, with the, the level of, of material quality and, and fit and finish. So... You know, uh, I, I don't know if, if offering a black colorway will, will really mitigate my, my concerns with it, but, uh, you know, credit to them for, for offering some colors. Yeah, I mean, the MG is kind of the more risk-averse choice in terms of the ownership yeah. and in terms of the design. If you're someone who likes to stay with the familiar, then the MG is just an automatic walk-up start. So which one won? So the BYD wins this one, um, which is not to say that uh, the MG doesn't have some positive attributes. I think it's really important to say that both of them make uh, the Japanese, German and Korean brands look pretty silly because the cheapest Kona is 60 grand, the cheapest Leaf is 54. Oh. And both of these undercut those significantly. And, I mean, where's Volkswagen's cheap here? Where's Ford's? Where's Mitsubishi's? Where's Mazda's? Where's Toyota's? I could go on. So MG and BYD are delivering what the market wants at a scale that really only Tesla can compete with at this stage. Despite buzzwords from every other brand, these brands are actually doing it, right? So that's, that's to be commended. The MG's pricing is better. Its running costs are lower. Its interior is more conventional. Warranty has fewer asterisks next to it. It's got more dealers and it's got in-house wall box solutions. So all those, all those attributes are definitely worth mentioning, but... The Addo 3 is a better car. It's, uh, it's got a better interior. It's got a better motor, longer range, better tech, over-the-air updates, probably better value for money when you factor in everything around it. 
Um, the only sort of jury out moment is around the actual company behind distributing it here, which still has some sort of kinks to iron out. But but as actual vehicles driven, the BYD is the one that gets the nod for me. And I'm really excited by what BYD has to come. It's got more products coming in the next few months, including a Model 3 style sedan, including a hopefully sub $40,000 small electric hatchback. Um, and this company is taking over Europe. It's branching out into America. It's even selling cars in Japan, which... There aren't too many Chinese brands doing that, let me tell you. So really, really a brand to watch. Keep your eyes closely peeled on, on what BYD comes out with next. And commendations to the MG, but, but the BYD is the one to have. Mm-hmm. And keep your eyes on carexpert.com today. You're under the comparisons link for that one coming soon. Now, just before we do wrap up this week's podcast, I don't know what this story is all about, Marco, but you said something about Volkswagen and a steering wheel. So please fill us in. Oh, boy, am I feeling even smugger than I usually feel right now. Um, Because I have had arguments with numerous friends of mine that work for the Volkswagen Group who have been defending the company's recent move towards having haptic, glossy black touch points on the steering wheels of cars like the Golf R, the Touareg, and, of course, high-spec Tiguan's as well. Uh, These are track pads that allow you to move your thumb in a sort of swiping motion to control volume or to to sort of to tap gently, almost like a haptic trackpad rather than a conventional damp physical button on the spoke of each wheel. Um, I've, for a long time, and I'm not an orphan here, I know, Will, you feel the same way. I know mm. that everyone else on staff, Scott's mentioned it too. It sucks. It's really, really, really <laughs> unintuitive. It's real. like you find yourself completely stuffing up any input. You press the wrong button, it does the wrong thing, it doesn't respond how you want it to. And considering Volkswagen's always been incredibly sensible, ergonomic, well-thought-out Germanic interiors, it really felt like a massive departure from that. And Thomas Schaefer, who is the Volkswagen passenger car's CEO and uh, a board member for Volkswagen AG, put a LinkedIn post out over the weekend and he said, quote, we're sharpening our portfolio and our design plus creating a new simplicity and operating our vehicles. For example, we are bringing back the push-button steering wheel, he said. This is what our customers want, Um, which makes me feel very smug because, you know, I told you so. Uh, We told you so. We mentioned this. Go read any old Volkswagen review and you'll see us moaning about it. And I'm really glad that, A, Thomas Schaefer in his new role, and, again, this is a new role for him. He isn't the guy that signed off on this, as far as I know, has said enough is enough. This sucks. Let's get rid of it. Um, And it takes guts to admit you're wrong. And I really respect that Volkswagen has admitted it's wrong. Now I just need to get, you know, people who work for Volkswagen to admit the same thing. Um, (laughs) What I would say also is next cab off the rank, the non-backlit touch controls for the ventilation, which having recently spent time in a Tiguan that had that and not being able to change your temperature at night time really annoyed me. Small, easy fix Volkswagen. Thomas Schaefer, if by some miracle you're listening to this, please make that your next priority. And this is the thing, right? Volkswagen should have seen this coming. They should have seen the backlash because Ford and GM about 10 years ago started rolling out touch capacitive controls in their cars people hated them and they were Mm -hmm. dropping down the consumer reports survey charts and everyone was complaining about them. So they finally just said, all right, let's just phase them back out. And then Volkswagen comes along a few years later and they start rolling it out. That climate slider thing. I absolutely hate it. I hate the over-reliance on, on the screen to do everything. I hate the getting rid of, of buttons. I don't know if that's a 
for the slick, minimalist, futuristic aesthetic, or if it's just cheaper. But those steering wheel controls, oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but those steering wheel controls, I really hate because they don't feel they don't feel intuitive to me, and they feel cheap, and they kind of feel almost broken. Like, I, am I using them wrong? I, you're I, in a hundred thousand dollar Touareg, and it feels like your wheels made of cheap. Crappy, clicky, oh, clackety, click, sort of click. plasticky joints, yeah. And uh, it, it did seem like a strange step, and I'm really glad Volkswagen's acknowledged it and admitted it. And um, I also need to cite uh, a recent quote from Johnny Ive. So Johnny Ive, the, the guy that designed the iPhone, the iMac, the possibly the most credentialed designer on the planet, frankly, when you consider the, the, the utterly ubiquitous technology this person has designed. He said... The lack of buttons and the reliance on touchscreens and touchpads for everything is a terrible idea and the car makers are completely on the wrong track. We ran a story on it. Go check it out. Google Johnny Ive, car expert. And I'm telling you, if that guy says something isn't designed well, I'm siding with him no matter what because he knows more about design than most people have forgotten. A guy who's designed touchpad technology is saying, no, don't do it. It's like not the for cars, you know, like phones not for cars, awesome. yeah. I'm not wow. opposed to touchscreens. Like they're great, but for certain functions, haptic trackpads and touchpads and capacitive pads and all these new features, they just don't do what buttons, knobs and dials do. And you might call me old school, but that's just, that's just the way it is. It really is. I think we're all in agreement with you, Moko, for sure. Um, now... Uh, let's just wrap this up now. Um, Moko, where is the team off to over the next week? So there's a few events going on, actually. Scott is heading over to Adelaide, where everyone has an accent as posh as he does, uh, to drive the (laughs) Volvo C40 Recharge, the new coupe electric SUV that company sells. I'm going to do a a BYD and Ampol announcement around public charging infrastructure. Um, Tony is off to Palm Springs, oh, classic Tony oh maneuver. Lucky uh, bastard. To drive the 7 Series and X7 LCI. I recently sat in the new i7, by the way, at the BMW Melbourne dealership opening, and my God, that interior is just next level. Um, I'm off to Regional Vic to drive the Audi SQ7 and SQ8 updates. Um, so, again, spending time in vehicles I could never hope to afford. Um, and then there's a few more uh, local events pushing into next week as well. So things are starting to slow down after the madness of the past few weeks, but there's still definitely plenty of events for us all to head to. Awesome. And what sort of cars have we got coming up to, Will? So up here I just swapped out of a Ranger Raptor, which I did not want to give back, and I think that's the first time I've ever said that about a ute. Oh, my God, it was, <laughs> it was fantastic. I could talk about that for ages. Uh, I swapped into an Escape ST-Line um, plug-in hybrid. So, yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, we really, I, I was driving an, an Outlander Fev recently, so I'll be very interested to see how this kind of compares to that. Um, in Melbourne, uh, you guys have got a Renault Arcana RS-Line, a mini electric hatch, Toyota GR86 with a manual, very nice. A base model Porsche Taycan. Uh, Kia EV6 Air, so that's the absolute base model in the EV6 range. I just finally got a chance to drive an EV6 the other week and thoroughly enjoyed it, but that was a GT line all-wheel drive from memory. Um, Mercedes-Benz EQB 354 Matics, the top-of-the-line version of the new electric EQB range, Australia's only three-row electric SUV for now, Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. Um, and I know we spoke about this on the podcast quite recently, but uh, down the Melbourne office, they've also got a Volkswagen Tiguan All Space 162 TSI Adventure. 
So it's always Which, fun when you've been to a launch event and gotten to drive a car for about five minutes and you actually get it into uh, the garage just a few yes. weeks later. Uh, so, yeah, well, Scott Colley, as we know, I think last week's had lots of good things to say about the adventure. So it'll be um, good to get the rest of the team in it as well. Okay, that is a wrap. Thank you very much, William Stopford and Mike Costello. Thank you. Thanks, Mandy. Mandy.